Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. In 1970, Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote the song, The King is Coming, after Gloria heard an evangelist preach on the second coming of Jesus. That song has become a favorite of Christians around the world. Today, John's message on the second coming shares the same title, The King is Coming. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter number one, and we'll be reading today about how we learn that the king is coming. The Bible is very clear on that. And beginning in verse number 4 of Acts chapter 1. Now here's Jesus on the Mount of Olives 40 days after the resurrection. He's with his disciples. He's about to go up into heaven. And we read in verse number 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John, that is John the Baptist, truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, now notice what Jesus said in response to their question, it is not for you to know. Say that with me. It is not for you to know. You know what that tells me? It tells me that in life, there are some things God doesn't want us to know. We've all had times in life when we've asked God a question. God, why did I get cancer? God, why did my loved one die? God, why are there all these wars? Why is there so much anger and hatred and divisiveness and division? And God, why are are there these shootings in these schools and these other places? God, why? And yet, God says to us what he said to those disciples many times, it is not for you to know. He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Lord has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. While it is true that there are some things God doesn't want us to know, at least not now, Maybe later on in the journey, we'll learn the answer to those questions. Certainly in heaven, we'll know. But there are some things God does want you to know. God wants you to know your purpose in life, and God wants you to know your source of power. Now, we know that our primary purpose in life is to know God in a personal way, to get saved and develop a relationship with Jesus. But also, our purpose in life, here is Jesus said, is to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, where you are, and beyond to everywhere in all the earth. And so our purpose is to take the gospel beyond the walls of this church to all the people who don't know Jesus Christ. Now, one of the reasons that God didn't take us to heaven right after we got saved is because He wants us to spend our remaining time on earth doing what? Helping all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. You say, now, John, why is that such a big deal? Why is it so important for us to devote our time and resources, and you've been talking about it a lot lately, why is it so important for us to do this? Well, the answer to that question is because Jesus Christ is coming again. Look in verse number 9. Now, when Jesus had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. These are two angels. And so now Jesus is being taken up into heaven. The disciples are watching this amazing sight as he's being engulfed now in a heavenly cloud. And verse 10 while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, these two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so the angel said, Why are you looking up and watching Jesus being taken back to heaven? Remember this, this same Jesus, the Jesus who is going up, will one day come right back down. This Jesus who is being taken from earth to heaven will one day be dispatched from heaven back to earth. Jesus is coming back. And the angels were saying to those disciples, in essence, the reason that Jesus has just told you to be witnesses to him here, there, and everywhere is because it is your job to prepare as many people as you possibly can for the second coming of Jesus Christ. The, G the same Jesus who went up, he is coming back to the earth. Now, as I think about that, and as I think about our responsibility to prepare as many people as we can for the second coming of Christ, I can't help but to think about the ministry of John the Baptist. I think most of us are familiar with John the Baptist. He was a cousin of Jesus, but more importantly, he was the one who announced to the world of his day to the people in his sphere of influence that they needed to get ready because the Messiah was about to come onto the scene. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter number 1, we see a verse that tells us about the ministry of John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so Joy, uh, John used his voice to say what? The Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And once Jesus came on the scene, what did John the Baptist say? He said, there he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist's entire life in ministry was for the sole purpose of announcing the arrival of Jesus Christ. So let's take that one step further and think about how it relates to us. Just like John the Baptist's job was to prepare people for the coming of Christ. That's what he did. Our job is to prepare people for the second coming of Christ. That, that is our mission. That is our job to announce to our family members, to our friends, and to anybody in our sphere of influence that Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. You know, if you think about the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, the first coming in Bethlehem, the second coming when he leaves heaven and comes back to this earth, there are a lot of differences between those two comings. For example, when Jesus came the first time, he came in humility. But when Jesus comes the second time, he's coming in power and great glory. When Jesus came the first time, he came largely unnoticed by the people in his day. Many didn't even recognize him as the Christ. But when Jesus comes the second time, he's coming riding on the clouds, and the Bible says that every eye shall see him. When Jesus came the first time, he came for the purpose to save and to serve. But when Jesus comes the second time, he's coming to rule and to reign. When Jesus came into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday for the first time, he rode into the holy city on the back of a, of a lowly, humble donkey, a young colt. 
But when Jesus comes back the second time and rides into the city of Jerusalem, he'll ride on the back of a victorious white horse. When Jesus came the first time, he was mocked, he was beaten, and he was crucified. But when Jesus comes the second time, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what those angels were saying. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Why are you so fascinated with the fact that Jesus is being taken from you? Shouldn't your focus instead be on the fact that Jesus Christ on the appointed day is coming back to this earth, and on that day, He will make all things right, and He'll make all things new. Now, as I said, our job is to prepare people for his second coming. You know, back in the Middle Ages and even the early part of modern history, if a king was coming to a particular city for a visit, the people in that city, weeks and even months in advance, would prepare for the arrival of the king. They would get all the landscaping pretty. They would get the buildings and streets as clean and pretty as they could get it. So on the day the king came, the king could see the city at its best. Now, if the king had won a war and defeated the enemy, they would even make it a bigger deal. And it was even a greater celebration. They wanted to honor the arrival of the king. Now, think about us. as We're Christians. Our king is coming back to this earth. And not only is he coming back, he's coming back after having won a tremendous victory. On the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus Christ defeated Satan, He defeated death, he defeated hell, and he defeated the grave. And so when Jesus comes back, he's coming back as a conquering king. And so what God has given us is a little advance notice. And God has said to us, hey, just like John the Baptist prepared the people for his first coming, you prepare people for his second coming. Make the announcement and let it be clear that the king is coming back to this earth. How can we do that? How can we say something to somebody that could influence them for Jesus Christ? What's it going to take to to effectively reach out into our community and reach people for Christ. Now, certainly it's going to take honesty, and we have to present the gospel, invite them to church, all that. But in addition to the obvious, what is it going to take? It's going to take kindness. Our first adverb there is kindly. How do we reach these people? We reach them kindly. Now, I am of the belief and the conviction and the concern that kindness is becoming a disappearing quality in the world today. I just don't see kindness. In fact, I read an article a couple of weeks ago by Andy Stanley, pastors of a great church in North Atlanta, and he said that in his opinion, the church, he's talking about the church, not his church, but the church in the general, he's saying that he believes the church is in a state of emergency. And I have been feeling this myself for a long time. Not talking about First Baptist Church, talking about the church globally and certainly the church nationally, that the church is in a state of emergency. And one of the reasons that Andy gave for that, and one of the reasons that I have felt this for so long, and he didn't say it this way, but this was the spirit of what he was saying. He was saying that even in the church today, what's happening is instead of us building bridges to the unsaved, We're building walls. Now, he didn't use that terminology. That's my terminology, but I think that is what's happening. If we're going to reach unsaved people, we have to learn to build a bridge 
to that person's life. Now, before I get into this, turn to chapter 17 of Acts. Paul gives us an example of how he was a bridge builder. Paul, let me say this, never compromised the truth of God's Word, and he never compromised the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. He never backed down on that, and neither can we. But Paul was smart enough to know that God didn't just put him on the earth to, quote, take a stand. You know, I think many Christians today have the idea that their job is to take a stand and to say it straight and to never back down. Well, we should take a stand, and we should say it straight, and we, we should never back down. But if we do that with meanness instead of kindness then we're building a wall instead of building a bridge. Now, in Acts 17, Paul is in Athens, Greece, and it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. And so even though their religions were false and wrong, he started out by trying to build a bridge. He didn't, but notice what he says. He says, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And then look what he says. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. And so Paul is using not only conviction here, but he's using kindness and he's using wisdom. And he's saying, as I've been around the whole city of Athens today, I've seen all these altars of worship. The Greeks back in this time, they had altars to worship every god, the sun, the moon, the stars, the rain, fertility. They just made up all these gods, these Greek gods and goddesses. And Paul knew there was nothing to that. Paul knew that that wasn't real. But he didn't go into their city and say, hey, I notice all these altars y'all have built, and I just want you to know it's all a bunch of bogus and you're all going to hell. Now, he didn't say that. He was trying to not build a wall, but to build a bridge. He said, I noticed with all these altars that y'all have that y'all are very religious. You're a very religious group. Well, that was kind of a kind thing for Paul to say, and it was true. And then he said, you've even got this one altar to the unknown God. He said, you're worshiping a God. You don't even know who he is because you don't want to leave any of the gods out. And he, so he used that as his platform to do what? To build a bridge. And he said, the one you don't know is the one I do know. And I want to tell you about him. And so that was Paul's introduction to preach to the people in Athens, Greece, about Jesus. He did it warmly, and he did it with kindness. Now, kindness, again, I'm afraid, is just dissipating largely even amongst us, the Christian community. Ephesians 4.32. Notice the importance of kindness. Notice what it says here. And be kind to one another. Kindness. And then what it says, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Even as God in Christ forgave you, you know, kindness, tenderhearted, forgiving, loving, overlooking offenses, not holding grudges, just being kind. It's very important. And did you know that kindness is very important when it comes to inviting people to church? And it's very important when it comes to talking to them about Christ. Did you know that kindness, from a biblical perspective, is so important? That the Bible says it was God's kindness, in part, that led to our salvation. Look at Romans chapter 2 and in verse 4. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Why did you and I get saved? Well, certainly because Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins and so on. But when the Holy Spirit convicted us of our sins, He did it with kindness. Think about this. After you sinned for the first time, God didn't just zap you and send you to hell. No. God was patient. 
God gave you a second chance. God gave me a third chance. God gave us as many chances. God gave us multiple chances to respond to the gospel and be saved. He was patient. He was kind. And it dawned on us when we were convicted of the Holy Spirit, not only were we sinners in need of, of a Savior, not only did Christ die to be our Savior, but it dawned on us that God loves us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And so it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance that led us to be saved. Now think about this. If God used kindness with us to bring us to Christ, how can we hope to bring others to Christ unless we too use kindness? You say, John, why do you think kindness is is dissipating? Why is kindness disappearing? Well, I think what's happening in the world today as our world has become more polarized and, and, and we're just, you know, the, the views are so different from, from say, Christians and, and many, not all non-Christians, but many non-Christians, our views are so differently that we so badly want to take a stand and stand by our convictions. And that's all right, and we should, but if we're not careful, we can do it without kindness, and we're not going to be effective. If your convictions aren't wrapped with kindness, you will repel more people from Christ than you will ever attract to Christ. And so it's not enough to have our convictions. Think, think about our convictions. Now, our convictions on abortion, our convictions on gay marriage, our convictions on all these social issues. Why do we have the convictions that we have? We have the convictions we have because our convictions are rooted in the Bible. But the people we're trying to reach they don't necessarily believe the Bible. They've never read the Bible. They don't even know what the Bible says or teaches. And so if all we do is go to them and say, you're wrong and I'm right, while that statement may well be true, and it is true on some of the issues, certainly it's true, but that's not going to win them to Christ. We've got to have kindness if we're going to hope to win the people to Jesus Christ. Now, what are our core beliefs as Christians? Well, the two that come to my mind, there are a lot of them, but the two that come to my mind first, we as Christians, and maybe you're not even a Christian today, you say, now what do you Christians believe? Well, first of all, we believe that the Bible, now listen to these words I'm going to use, is the inspired, infallible, inerrant, perfect Word of God. We believe that this book is not a book of human opinion. This is the very Word of God. God inspired people to write the words that are in this Bible. From the first book verse in Genesis to the last verse in Revelation, everything the Bible says is true. This is the Word of God. There are no errors. If my Bible says genuine leather, I believe the leather is genuine. I believe the maps in the back are inspired. I believe everything in this book is the Word of God. This is, so, so my beliefs are all rooted in this book. The second thing we believe, and we believe the second thing because we believe the first thing, is that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. He's not one road among multiple roads. He is the only road. He is the only way to heaven. Now, let's just play like we're sitting around in a circle. I'm in the circle, and you're in the circle. We are the designated Christians in the circle. But in our circle, we have a Muslim, we have a Buddhist, we have a Hindu, we have a Jew, and we have an atheist. And there we are in our circle. And there's a moderator who's asking questions, and the moderator says, I want to ask, this is going to be interesting to me, the moderator says, all these religions represented here, how do each of you believe that you're going to go to heaven when you die? 
And the atheist speaks up and says, well, I don't believe there is a heaven. I don't believe there is a God. And so we say, okay, well, you're out of this conversation. He doesn't even believe in any of that. And so the Muslim is asked, how do you believe that a person goes to heaven when, when they die? And that Muslim may say it in different ways, but that Muslim is going to say, well, the first thing we need, that a person needs to do would be to convert to Islam, accept the teachings of Allah, follow the instructions of Muhammad. But if you really press the Muslim faith, and say, okay, but how is it that you believe you're going to be admitted into heaven? What the, if you really press that, what they would say, we believe at the end of it all, we will stand before Allah in heaven, and he has the divine scales, and if our good deeds have outweighed our bad deeds, we've done more good than we've done bad, then Allah will let us into heaven. And so that's, that's kind of their teaching. And so that's their answer. So the Jew, to the Jew, how do you believe as a Jew that you go to heaven? Well, first you must become Jewish. And then you must keep the teachings of the law as revealed in the Old Testament. And they would just say their Bible. And so at the end of life, if you have done that and done the best you can to keep the Old Testament law, the Bible law, they would say, then God will admit you into heaven. And so you ask all these different religions, what do you believe? And then finally they come over there to me and you, and, and we're the Christians, and they say, you're a Christian. How do you believe you go to heaven? And uh, I look to you and say, you go ahead and answer that question. And you say, no, you're the preacher. You answer that question. And I say, okay, I'll answer that question. I say, well, this has been interesting, listening to all these different answers. And it is true that I'm a Christian. And it is true that I believe the Bible. And here's what the Bible teaches, and here's what I believe. I believe that the only way a person can go to heaven is by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And here's why I believe that. Because out of everything that's been discussed today and all these other religions of the world, only Jesus Christ has taken care of the sin problem. Only Jesus Christ has made provision for the sin problem. If it weren't for Jesus, we would kind of be like what we've been hearing. We would be hoping that our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. But even if our good outweighs our bad, we still have the bad... And those bad deeds still would have to be forgiven, but only in Christ's death on that cross in the shedding of his blood is there a provision for our sins to be forgiven. And so I believe you go to heaven through Jesus. And so the interviewer, the moderator would say, now, Mr. Edmund, do you believe that you can only go to heaven through Jesus? Isn't that closed-minded or narrow-minded? I would say, well, I do believe that it is only through Jesus, and there is a sense, I see what you're saying, that that is closed-minded or narrow-minded. You know, I, I would say that, but I would say, remember now, all truth is narrow. You know, Austin is the capital of Texas, not San Antonio, not Houston, not Dallas. It's Austin. If I'm on an airplane, and that plane is coming down, and that, that, uh, that pilot is looking at the, at, the, at the dashboard, as we would call it there, and all those instrument panels, and the, he's got the little, that's lined up on the cross, and if I'll stay straight, that's where I'm, the, the runway is. I hope that my pilot is narrow-minded. I hope he doesn't just say, the runway's down there somewhere, and we're going to just try to find it. All truth is narrow. And so, you know, it is true that there's a certain amount of narrowness to it, but if I'm in a burning building and the fireman comes in and says, hey, there's only one way out, I don't look at that fireman as being narrow-minded. I look at that fireman as being honest and telling me the only way for my life to be saved is to come out that one door. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is that one door, and he's the only way out. 
of here. And he has made provision for us. Jesus does describe himself as the door to salvation. He tells us in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Do you know that his salvation is available to you right now? You can know Jesus as the door and experience new life in him right now. Maybe today you need to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Won't you pray with me now? Dear Jesus, I believe that you love me and that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. Right now, I ask you to come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. Please make me the person you created me to be. In your name I pray, amen. For those of you who have prayed to receive Christ as your Savior today, we would love to know about it and shall rejoice with you in your decision. Please tell us about your new life in Christ by sending an email to info at peacebybelieving.org or by giving us a call at 1-800-337-0157. Again, that's 1-800-337-0157. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to you being with us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.